0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Do unto others as you were doing to me. That's deep stuff. That's the struggle. Are we ever going to create a just society? Probably not in your lifetime, but that's part of an ongoing mission that other people are giving you. You've got to give it to your kids, and they will give it. That's the struggle. You know, we don't have the right to be fatigued. We have the right to roll up our sleeves, and get the work and transform this country.
2: Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong Whaley. On March 2nd, 2023, the Center for Politics hosted an evening with Senator Bernie Sanders. He opened the evening with a brief overview of his new book, It's Okay to be Angry About Capitalism, and questions he wants us to consider about the state of democracy and society. At the most fundamental level, he asked, what is going on in American life today? Who is benefiting and who is losing from the way power is structured? What kind of democracy do we live in when billionaires can buy elections? He also asked whether healthcare is a human right. Robert Costa, chief elections and campaign correspondent for CBS News and a Center for Politics scholar, also asked Senator Sanders some questions to dive deeper into the substance and policy questions of the new book. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you all uh, for coming out in this beautiful, beautiful room. Uh, Let me thank Larry for his lovely introduction and Bob Costa. Uh, for joining me for a discussion, which we'll have in a few minutes. Uh, but first, uh, I want to give you about a 10-hour speech. <laughs> no. Uh, and, and, uh, so let me thank you for coming out and to tell you uh, why um, I've recently written a book called It's Okay to be Angry About Capitalism. And what I wanted to do in the book is kind of break through uh, a lot of the kind of irrelevant uh, discussion that takes place regarding politics in America. And I wanted to tell the American people that politics is more than polls, it's more than dumb things that politicians say, of which they do many, including myself, Uh, It is more than even elections. It's more than Democrats attacking Republicans and Republicans attacking Democrats. To me, what real politics is about are a few things. Number one, it is asking what you might think is an easy question, but really it's not. And that is, what's going on in American life today? What's going on? They say, well, we know what's going on. Really, do we? Who's winning in American society? You all saw, most of you saw the Super Bowl. Kansas City won, we know who won, we know who lost. Who's winning in American society? All right, all right, well. (laughs) You read the book, all right. But that's the, uh, but the point is we don't ask. The point is to ask questions, to think about things that you don't usually see, that you don't see on TV or or kind of reading the paper. So when we think about which team, so to speak, is winning in modern society, obviously the team that is doing better than at any time in American history are the people on top, the billionaire class, the 1%, doing phenomenally well, phenomenally well. Which team is losing ground? Which team is like, 0 in 10 in the football season. And that is the working class of America. You say, working class? What are you talking about? What does that mean? Turn on television, I want you to think about it. How often have you heard the term working class? Not very often. Is there a working class in America? What do you think? Is there? Yeah, of course there is. Happens to be the significant majority of the American people. When you have three people in America owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society, when you have massive concentration of ownership in sector after sector where a handful of large corporations control what goes on in agriculture, healthcare, uh, transportation, financial services, do we have a ruling class in America? What do you think? Is that a question that you ever ask yourselves? Do you hear that discussed much in class? Do you hear it discussed much in media? Do you hear it discussed much in the United States Congress? Do you hear anyone say, well, ruling class today, we cannot even begin, and there are reasons why that's to conceptualize what is going on in American society. Why is that? Because the people on top have enormous, not only economic power, which they do, we'll get into that in a minute, not only enormous political power, they also have enormous media power. And they kind of define what we are allowed to get upset about and outraged about, and more or less what we are not allowed to talk about. So what that book is about is trying to break through all of that and talk about reality. And here is the reality. The reality is that in America, despite a huge explosion of technology in the last 50 years, which makes you guys far more productive than your parents in terms of output because of that technology, the weekly average wage for an American worker today, in real inflation-adjusted dollars, is lower than it was 50 years ago. Got it? Over a period of 50 years, think about the explosion in technology, people are much more productive than they used to be, and yet that average worker today, weekly income less than it was 50 years ago. In the richest country in the history of the world, over 60% of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. You all know what that phrase means, paycheck to paycheck? Some of your families are living paycheck to paycheck. It means you work hard at the end of the week, you got nothing, your car breaks down, you're in a lot of trouble. They raise the rent, you're in a lot of trouble. Paycheck to paycheck, over 60%. It means that in America today, you got 85 million people who are uninsured or underinsured, 60,000 die because they don't get to a doctor on time. It means that one out of four people cannot afford the prescription drugs their doctors prescribe for them. It means that when everybody understands how important education is for our own development as a human being, many of you are gonna leave school deeply in debt, we we got 45 million people struggling with student debt today, and we have a childcare system which is in total disarray and outrage, and on and on it goes. So what you have in American society, which we're more or less not supposed to be thinking about, not supposed to be talking about, Who has the wealth, who has the power? And what I'm here to tell you is that these people on top come across as really nice guys, they contribute money to the local art museum, and they give money to the Boys and Girls Club, they're really sweet people. They're not. They are, in many instances, extraordinarily greedy people who will crush workers, who will fight to cut social security and Medicare and affordable housing in order to make the next 10 billion dollars, which they don't need. And your job is to begin to think about these things. You know, in America, we believe, I believe. You work hard, you start a business, you make money. God bless you, good for you. But do you need to have 10 billion dollars? How much money does a human being need? might you not get by with a few hundred million dollars if you paid your fair share of taxes. So those are the questions that I want you to be thinking about. I want you to be thinking about the fact that we live in a democracy, supposedly, and all of you are aware of the threats to our democracy. You're all familiar with what happened on January 6th. I was there in the Capitol. And you're all aware that Trump lies every single day and still claims that he won an election, which he lost. But what you're not hearing enough about is that as a result of this disastrous Citizens United Supreme Court decision, I hope you guys are familiar with it, are you? All right, that was a decision, and I won't get into it great length now, but basically said to billionaires, hey, you guys want to buy an election? You want to buy a candidate? No problem, that's your American right. That's freedom of speech. You can spend hundreds of millions of dollars, without disclosure, by the way, contributing to anybody you want to elect, contributing to defeat anybody you don't like. One of the things that we have accomplished in the last number of years, and I'm very proud of this, we have elected a number of wonderful young progressives to the U.S. House of Representatives. Many of them are young people of color, as a matter of fact. And yet, right now, right now as we speak, the billionaire class, is assembling millions of dollars to try to defeat them in the Democratic primaries. So you have to ask yourselves, what kind of democracy do you live in when billionaires can buy elections? Now, if I'm running against you and you outspend me 10 to one or 100 to one, I might beat you every blue moon. You're gonna win most of the time. Money talks in politics. You gotta be thinking about what money means in politics, what money means in our economy, and then you gotta also be thinking into the future. And when we talk about what's real in politics, it's not just understanding what is going on today, as important as that is. What's your vision for the future? What kind of America do you want? Do you think healthcare is a human right? then why is it that we are the only major country on earth not to provide health care to all people? I live in Burlington, Vermont, 50 miles away from Canada. You may or may not know this, because we don't talk about it too much in Congress, or certainly in the media. You have a heart transplant in Montreal, you're in the hospital for a month or however long, you know what the bill is when you get out? Zero. And you know that in Canada, they spend about 50% of what we spend per capita on healthcare. Hmm, that's interesting. They spend half as much as we do, and everybody has health care, and nobody pays a nickel at point of service. Does that happen? Well, we don't talk about that too much. I was just, Jane and I were just in the UK a few days ago. In the UK, you have a baby, and you know what? Typical of other European countries, you get nine months paid family leave. You know what you get in America? Zero. Women giving birth today who in one week or two weeks will be back on the job in order to get the income they need to raise their family. Barbaric, yet it exists. So these are the kinds of questions. Now you're also looking at right now, you guys are gonna be in the middle of it, your generation. An explosion of artificial intelligence, Technology, it is gonna remake the workforce. Millions of jobs are gonna be lost, millions more new jobs are gonna be created. What say do you have in that? Who's gonna make those decisions? Who's gonna benefit from it? If a machine comes along, if robotics, artificial intelligence that makes your job more efficient, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. But what happens if you're thrown out on the street because you no longer need it? Why are we not talking about a shorter work week? Why are we not talking about workers themselves being more involved in the economy and determining the kind of work that they do? Things like worker ownership. Gone on for too long. Uh, Let me just say, those are some of the things that we write about in the book. Uh, I'm really glad that you're here, and now Bob and I, Bob are gonna cross-examine me on some of these things. (laughs) So thank you all very much. Thank you all for uh, being here this
0: evening, and Senator Sanders, really appreciate you taking the time to come to the University of Virginia. Congratulations on your book. Uh, let's begin with some of the themes you were just outlining in your remarks. You write in the book about what you call the immorality of capitalism. Can you
1: explain what you meant by that? Again, every now and then I'm going to stand up if it's okay. I feel like hard I should for the stand brain too, to but... move when you're sitting here. <laughs> Thanks for that question, Bob. And, and it's uh... a <laughs> No, it's a a very, very important question. Again, on issues we don't talk about too much. Okay, let's talk about it. Some kid tonight walks into a 7-Eleven, takes out a gun, robs robs the store. Kid is caught. A kid has committed a crime. I think it's a crime. Guy's going to be punished. Okay, Criminal activity. We all agree, most of us agree on that. If you are the head CEO of a large fossil fuel company ExxonMobil, coal company and so forth. And over 50 years ago, it's important that you know this. The scientists in your company, pretty good smart guys, came to you and they said, uh, "Mr. CEO of ExxonMobil, uh it turns out that carbon emissions are going to cause disastrous impacts on the planet. They were told this 60 years ago. And what did they do when they heard that? Did they say, oh my god, we have got to protect the future of the planet. We're going to have to work tell everybody the truth. And we're going to have to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel. Because that is the moral and right thing to do. Because certainly, we would not want to make billions of dollars in profit as we destroy the planet. That's unthinkable. That's exactly what they did. Which crime is worse? The kid who walks into the 7-Eleven and robs it? Or people who knowingly are destroying the planet for short-term profits? Got to think about that. Other example, as Bob mentioned, I'm the head of the Committee uh, Health Education Labor that deals with, among other things, the cost of prescription drugs. Right now, in America, There are millions of people who cannot afford the medicine they need. I have talked to people who ration their insulin because they can't afford it. Diabetic, they can't afford it. People die in some cases because they can't afford the insulin. Now, if a board of directors of a pharmaceutical industry sits down and they said, look, we control the United States Congress. So we have all kinds of lobbyists. We give them all kinds of money. We can do anything we want to do. So I suggest that we raise the price of insulin, or we raise the price of this or that cancer drug. And somebody else says, well, you know, if you do that, you raise the price of that cancer drug, Maybe people can't afford it. Maybe they'll die. The guy says, well, that's not my problem. My problem is to make money for shareholders. Right now, we have vaccines that have saved God knows how many lives during this terrible pandemic. But there are poor people all over the world who can't afford to buy those vaccines. So I have in my hand something that will save your life. I'm not giving it to you. Now, what do you say about somebody who's walking around a swimming pool and there's a kid in the middle of the pool who's drowning? And the person says, I'm not going to go in there because I'm going to get my bathing suit wet. You would say, that is inhumane. That is horrible. What do you say to the CEOs of the drug companies who make tens of billions every single year? And they have the intellectual property for that drug. And if you don't have the money in Africa, Asia, whatever, you ain't going to get it. I got it. You don't have it. You die. I make money. What do you think, Bob? That moral?
0: As chairman, you have to hold these corporate leaders to account. And it's not just the pharmaceutical industry. You also are looking at companies such as Starbucks.
1: You didn't answer my question. Oh, wait. Uh, I know you're supposed to interview me. But, uh, We're me. here to hear you, Senator. I know. But does CBS talk about this much? I'm here
0: tonight having a conversation I with you. Know. About why it's okay to be.
1: I I apologize. You're right. I I will say this. I
0: will say this. It's not about me tonight. It's about Senator Sanders. But since you asked, the number one thing I encounter as a political reporter is economic pain. And it's very real. I've seen it covering your two campaigns in 2016 and 2020. I see it here in 2023. I'm not here to offer any policy prescriptions, but economic pain is so real when you travel the country. And he is one of the better reporters out there, so I thank you for what you're doing. Let's get back. Thank you. (laughs) Holding corporate leaders to account has been a priority for you your whole career, but especially now as chairman of the HELP Committee. Starbucks said today they would not provide their interim CEO, Howard Schultz, to come before your committee. Will you compel him to testify on March 8th when you have your committee vote?
1: Yes. Now, here is the story on that one, Bob. I I can't compel him. It's not my prerogative alone. I need a majority of the members of the Senate. I will ask for a vote on uh, March 8th. I think we're going to do it. We get the majority, that's it, he's subpoenaed. Why am I doing that? There is, and I, I want you guys to think about it, if you disagree with me, you know, that's American democracy, and I appreciate that. But what I think goes on in the case of Starbucks, and, and you, know, you saw the, um, the decision the, uh, the administrative judge just made yesterday, I think, wasn't that's it? That's right. right.
0: And I've been so, down to Richmond with you when you met with the union workers. That's right,
1: all right, just yesterday. An administrative judge at the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, issued a 200-page report. And essentially, without going into all the details, he confirmed what all of us had known. And that is workers in hundreds of shops, Starbucks shops, are organizing unions for better wages, better working conditions. And as Bob indicated, you know, I have talked to many of them and I've just been very impressed with them. Often young people, black and white and Latino and whatever, just great young people. And what Starbucks has consistently done is try to break the union organizing effort. They fire workers, uh, they have closed shops, and the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, on I believe 75 occasions, has cited them for illegal activity. It's illegal to do that. You want to form a union, you got a right to do that. I can oppose you, I can tell people it's a bad idea, but you have that right. And I can't fire you because you want to. That happens to be in violation of federal law. They did it. We asked them very politely, please come explain to us why you think that it's okay for a multinational corporation owned by a billionaire to violate federal law. We're not coming. We're not coming. We asked, we asked, we asked. They asked for documents. not coming. So we we finally have no choice but to say, guess what? You are coming. And you're going to answer. And the point about that is, and here's the point, I think many Americans, working class people, perceive that in our country, there is a two-tier system of justice. If you're an ordinary person, you commit a crime, you know, you're gonna pay for that crime. If you're a billionaire, you commit a crime, you got a dozen lawyers around you, you can stall things out and you don't get into trouble. Well, this is unacceptable to me, you know? If we live in a democracy, we all have to obey the law, even if you are a billionaire owner of a multinational corporation. So that's what this is about.
0: In your book, Senator, it's okay to be angry about capitalism. You quote President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt. You say his often overlooked 1944 State of the Union Address, and he talks about in that speech how true freedom comes from economic security and independence. Well, one very relevant issue on that front for this audience tonight is student debt. And President Biden's plan to cancel student debt faces a bit of a to-be-determined future in front of the Supreme Court. What's your message to this audience tonight on the future of that plan to cancel student debt?
1: Bob, I'm going to answer that. Let me just <laughs> let me jump to Roosevelt for a second, and I'll get. He back
0: sounds to that. like someone who's going to run again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Standing up.
1: What Bob was talking about was that in 1944, middle of World War II, a President Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave a State of the Union address, which, because it was in the middle of a war, never got a whole lot of attention. But what he said was really quite extraordinary. And, I, and again, that's why I wrote the book. I want you to be thinking about this stuff. And that is, he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing big time here. He said, look, you know, we are a democratic society. We should be very proud of the political rights that we have. You have the right to vote. You have the freedom of speech. You have freedom of religion. You've got freedom of assembly. You've got all of those things. We should be, you know, not every country on earth has that. We should be very proud of that. But then he asked another question. He said, in so many words, are you really free if you do not have economic rights, if you do not have affordable housing, if you do not have health care, if you do not have the right to education? And I would ask, you know, in the extreme case of somebody who's sleeping out on the street in Burlington, Vermont, or Virginia, is that person really free? What is freedom? And what we learn, what the psychologists tell us, if you've got to struggle every single day to put food on the table, to take care of your family, you live under great stress. Stress is a killer. Are you all familiar with a phrase the doctors use called diseases of despair? Do you know what that means? That means when people have no hope, when they are earning low wages, when they're worried that their kids are going to be worse off than they are, because they can't afford to go to a doctor, uh, when they have no future, they turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs, and tragically, increasingly, to suicide. Right? So stress kills. And what Roosevelt is saying is not that if we all have health care, suddenly everything is going to be great. It won't. But if you have a job that pays you a living wage, if you can afford the home that you are living in, it's a good home. If you can afford health care, if your kids are getting a good education, there's a lot of stress that's taken off of your shoulders. You can breathe. Life is not necessarily going to be great. Everyone has its problems, but it will be a lot easier. That's what Roosevelt was talking about, and that's kind of a lot of what the book is about, that economic rights are human rights, and we've got to strive to uh, Develop what Roosevelt talked about so many years ago. Now, to answer your question, um, to me, it is you know 50 years ago. Uh, you graduated high school. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Bob. But you know, you graduated high school, likely that you can go out, get a pretty good job, make it into the middle class, right? World has changed. Young people need a higher education. So many, many years ago, 100 years ago or so in America, working people fought for. A, public education, which said, doesn't matter what your income is, but you're going to have a free education from kindergarten through high school. Great idea. It is clear to me, and some governors around the country are moving in this direction, that we got to continue that and understand that it's not good enough to have free public education, K through 12, we have to make public colleges and universities tuition free. Not a radical idea. In fact, 50 years ago in America, correct me if I'm wrong, great universities like the University of California, City University of New York, many state colleges, do you know what tuition was? It wasn't. <laughs> True? True. Okay. So we've gone a step back. And now we have 45 million people dealing with student debt. You wanna to go to medical school and your family doesn't have a lot of money, you know what you can come out of medical school with? maybe four or $500,000 in debt, how's that? Want to go to nursing school, maybe $50,000, $80,000 in debt. And some of the people who incur debt don't even graduate college. They leave after a year or two, and they have 20000 or $30,000 done. Getting a low-wage job, how do they figure they're gonna pay that off? You have people on Social Security getting their Social Security payments docked in order to pay off their student debt. All right, so that is absurd. In my view, and when I ran for president, I campaigned on that. If we are living in a country which could give huge hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks to large multinational corporations to wealthy individuals, if we can increase military spending this year by $80 billion, you know what we can do? We can cancel all student debt in this country and give young people (laughs) the opportunity to get on with their lives. Now, President Biden did not go as far as I would go, but it was a pretty significant step forward. It would cut student debt big time, in some cases totally, for kids who did not have a lot of money. I shouldn't say kids, but other people, older people as well. Uh, and our friends on the Supreme Court, which is a very right-wing, corporately-oriented Supreme Court, held a hearing just the other day, and apparently their questioning was fairly skeptical of what Biden was trying to do. But as in everything else, I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to rule. I certainly hope that they, they rule in favor of what Biden did. But if not, what you have to understand is you have power. You have power, and I'll talk about that more in, in, in the evening. And you've got to make it clear to elected officials, you've got to start running for office yourself that you want to change national priorities, that you think it's absurd, the kids who don't come from you know kids who come from working class families have got to deal with student debt for decades that's not right that is not right and you have a right to stand up loudly and clearly and say that is not right and demand from your elected officials the elimination of all or a significant part of student debt so that's that
0: Another person you quote in the book is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And you use his lessons and legacies as a way to explain your position on how your view on economics is also intertwined with your view on systemic racism. Talk about how you see those two issues
1: together. This man read the book. Uh, Dr. King is one of my heroes and what I want you to know, because you don't get that when you turn on TV too much, you're younger and I was, I, I date myself, I know you're going to think I sound like George Washington here but <laughs> I was actually uh, at the event in D.C. when I was a kid um, where King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Now what people don't remember is what the title of that event was. Was it strictly a civil rights? You know, Dr. King had fought to try to desegregate the South and extraordinary leadership and so forth and so on. Do You know what the title of that event is? You remember that, Bob? It, it was, was the March on Washington. March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Jobs came before the freedom. Essentially what he was saying, of course, we gotta desegregate our society. And thank God you're too young to, own, to, remember, to know what I knew as a kid, where schools were segregated, by law, people could go drink at a water fountain, could go into a restaurant, right? And that's what King fought about. But this is what he also said. He said, what does it mean, what good is it to desegregate a restaurant if somebody can't afford to walk into that restaurant and get the hamburger that he needs? And what... King also was about and I hope you read about him. He was a man of great courage. I don't want to give a long speech on King. You know he got the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on civil rights and he could have been an exalted hero. Everybody praised them and so forth. Not everybody obviously but you know many people did. And then we had the war in Vietnam. And President Johnson who had done a lot of important work on civil rights for tragic reasons we don't have the time to go into. You know, propagated the war in Vietnam. And Dr. King got up and said, you know, I preach nonviolence. I tell people, don't be violent. How can I not speak out against this horrible, brutal war? And he gave strong, strong speeches in opposition to the war in Vietnam. And you know what the establishment said to him? He said, Who the hell do you think you are? You are a civil rights leader. Go desegregate some restaurant. Don't tell us how to do foreign policy. And suddenly, if you read the editorials, and papers all over the country, King was not such an honored person anymore. Why was he talking about American foreign policy and war? Not supposed to do that. Stay in your lane. And then he went even further. In the last year of his life, he was organizing something called a Poor People's March. And he said again, to answer Bob's question, of course, we got to desegregate. We got to end racism and segregation, but we also have to provide jobs and a decent standard of living for poor people. He organized the Poor People's March, which was poor, low-income African Americans, Latinos, whites, Native Americans, and his plan was to march on Washington to demand a radical change in national priorities: cuts in the military spending. And not only did he do all that, he started talking about the economic system, and capitalism, as a matter of fact. And said, you know, the, we start dealing with these things, we've got to think about the economy. And he said, you know, we have a we have rugged free enterprise for the poor. You're on your own. Stand up. Get a job. Get health care. Rugged free enterprise. Be tough. Rugged free enterprise for the poor, socialism for the rich. That's what King said, more or less. And when he died, do you all know where he was when he died? What was he doing when he died? He wasn't on a civil rights demonstration. He was helping striking garbage workers in Memphis, Tennessee, who were on strike, demanding decent wages and working conditions. That's where he got killed. So King was an extraordinary person, a man of great, great courage, who had the guts to look the world in the face, the establishment in the face, and say, I'm going to continue to fight. So we quote him a whole lot in the, in the book, because uh, he is one of my heroes. Senator Sanders.
0: You just mentioned President Lyndon Johnson and how he was trying to implement his Great Society program on the domestic front all while he dealt with Vietnam on foreign policy. As you see it, there is enormous challenges for the federal government, for the Congress right now on domestic policy, there's also many challenges abroad, especially the war in Ukraine. What should the United States role in that conflict be from here
1: on? Fair question about well, that. I don't have all the answers to it. All I will tell you is, is what I think most people think. And let me back it up by saying this I was really enraged uh, by Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. And, and I was a little bit involved. I'm not on the relevant committees, uh, that I'm not on the uh, Armed Forces Committee or the Foreign Policy Committee, but I was involved a little bit. And I believe absolutely, you know, what Putin was claiming was that. Uh, NATO was encroaching, getting closer to closer. Ukraine was going to be part of NATO, and his independence was being threatened. I can tell you unequivocally that there could have been that you know, the Biden administration, others, were prepared to come up with a solution that would have uh, addressed any, any of the legitimate concerns that Putin might have had. He didn't want to do that. He really didn't. And it, it was heartbreaking, not only for the horrible destruction we're seeing in Ukraine today, for tens of thousands of Russians, young Russian guys who are now dead. Uh, But also, what really was so upsetting to me is that after the Cold War, after the, the end of the Soviet Union, there was an effort, for whatever reasons, to try to bring the world together. You know, Nixon went to China, and we improved our relations with China. You know, Russia became more democratic, not very democratic, but more democratic. McDonald's came into Moscow, what more can you ask for? Uh, and there was the hope, there was the hope that we would have a world where countries could get along enough to spend huge monies on the military killing each other. And then he did this. And, and what? if you think about the existential threat of climate change, how are you going to solve that problem if you got a war over there with Russia, and you got an increasingly Cold War with China, which I am very concerned about. And I want to try to do my best to to not allow that to happen. Uh, But, you know, at this point, I think all that I can tell you is not too much different what, what other members of the Senate will tell you. And that is, I think you cannot allow to go unanswered a naked aggression, illegal aggression, against an independent country. Because if you do that, this guy will only become more emboldened. I'm sorry to have to say that. I wish I could come up with something else, but I think we've got to stop them. And hopefully, hopefully, there'll be a resolution and the people of Russia. And I got to tell you, I was enormously, you know, Russia is an increasingly authoritarian society. You may have seen in the early days there were young people in Russia going out onto the streets, uh, protesting, getting arrested, and God knows what happened to them. But I hope very much that the people of Russia can put enough pressure on Putin, which is not easy to do, uh, to have him end this terrible war.
0: Anyone who has followed your political career over the past decade know that in 2016 and 2020, you brought the issue of Medicare for All to the fore of American politics from a place where it was rarely, if ever, discussed. What is the future for that central proposal of your political agenda?
1: Um, I am not going to tell you that we're gonna pass Medicare for All this session. We're not. But the future is with us. And I'll give you a couple of examples of what I mean. Despite the fact that we are taking on the insurance company and all the insurance companies, all of their billions of dollars, and their campaign contribution, taking on the pharmaceutical industry and all of their power, more and more Americans, I want to ask you a question, and do not tell me what I want to hear, all right? Do not. Do you believe that healthcare is a human right and that all people are entitled to healthcare. Raise your hand if you do. Okay. How many do not? Okay. All right. And I think um, I wouldn't say, you know, that was almost unanimous here, but you know, I'm not gonna say that is the case all over the country. But I think most people understand it. And most people, when you deal with the healthcare, and I, I write a lot about that in the book, if you know, here's what we need to know we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. So I mentioned Canada as an example every European country has a different system but essentially what it says you're sick, you're rich, you're poor, you go to the doctor and there's a limit, real limit I think in Norway the maximum you can pay is like $250 a year no matter what you know different countries have different systems but what no other country has is a system which is dominated by private insurance companies So the function of the American healthcare system is not to do what the rational thing is. What's the rational thing? To provide quality care to all in a cost-effective way, right? That's the rational thing. This system is designed to make huge profits for the insurance companies. That's what it is. And then to do that, it becomes enormously complicated. Hundreds of different plans. And you got things. When I was in England. Just the other day, I asked people, anybody here know what a deductible is? (laughs) They don't know what a deductible is. They don't know. You should walk into the doctor, that's it. So what is a deductible about it? You have health insurance, but you got a $10,000 deductible. So you gotta pay the first 10,000 out of your own pocket. And what if you don't have any money? You don't go to the doctor. And that's why 60,000 people die every single year. So we got a system which is enormously complicated, Enormously expensive, designed to benefit the insurance companies. So what Medicare for all simply says is Medicare itself right now needs improvement. And I wanted to expand Medicare, as you know, during Build Back Better to cover dental, hearing and eyeglasses for the elderly. But the proposal that I brought forth, which I think had, I don't know how many, 15, 20 co-sponsors in the Senate, would essentially say that we expand over a period of five years, Medicare to every man, woman, and child in this country. It's one program. Not for the rich, not for the poor, for everybody. You go to any doctor you want, you don't have to take out your wallet. Now, is that an expensive proposal? Yes, it is. And the 30-second ads that attacks me say Bernie Sanders wants to raise your taxes. Well, to some degree, it's true. But you know what? You're not gonna pay a nickel out of your own pocket for health care. Your employer will not pay a nickel out of, from the company, for healthcare. We all get public health care. And it's one other I- issue that I've been thinking about over the years. It's not only that healthcare is right. What happens if you're, you know, mom, dad, you've got a family, you really hate your job, and we talk about that too in the book, and you stay at your job, why? Because you have a decent health care plan. Millions of people stay at their jobs because they have a decent health care plan. What do you think about that? Wouldn't it be a lot nicer if people had the freedom to do what they wanted and not be chained to a job just because they have a decent health care plan? So the idea that you'll get your insurance from a job is kind of crazy and we saw what happened during the pandemic when millions of people lost their jobs. So in the middle of a pandemic, people lose their jobs. What else do they lose? They lose their health care. That's brilliant. <laughs> all right, so if health care is a right, what we need to create, and it's not easy, we need to look at countries around the world who spend a fraction of what we spend. A, health care belongs to all people. B, it is comprehensive, including mental health, obviously, including dental care, hearing, all that stuff. And uh, we get the doctors and nurses and the uh, dentists that we need. So I've got a whole chapter on that, but I feel very passionately that if we can come up with a Medicare for All system, it will profoundly improve the quality of life in this country.
0: Right now on Capitol Hill, long-term federal spending programs are part of the political conversation. Two connected questions here. Some Republicans, including former President Trump, Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the House, in recent months have talked about how they would like to lay off Medicare as part of debt ceiling negotiations, and really generally, do you buy it? Two, Social Security. Many people in this room dealing with debt and other issues, but their parents and grandparents, Social Security is a key issue. Some of your colleagues in the Senate, Republicans and Democrats, right now, talking about making changes to Social Security, though those talks remain informal. Do you buy the Republicans' change of tune on Medicare? And two, what is the fate of Social Security changes as your colleagues begin these discussions?
1: Some of you may have followed it. I think not probably as closely as Bob has, but you know what Republicans were talking about. They have the House Study Group made up of many, many Republicans and and others uh, are saying, "Look, we have a large uh, national debt, which is certainly true. We have a deficit, true, and the way to solve that problem is to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education, food stamps, basically." almost all of the federal programs that are out there. That's what they said, and that's what they, those are the kind of programs they, they developed, It's in print. But then, you know, we did a pretty good job, I think, in saying, you know, when you got a health care crisis in America, shouldn't be cutting Medicare. When you've got many elderly people, about half the elderly people, elderly workers in America, have zero in the bank as they face retirement, probably not a brilliant idea to cut Social Security. Okay. And I think we developed a strong public consensus which made the Republicans kind of retreat on that issue. And Trump, who is a demagogue and a liar, is a better politician than some of these guys. Trump said, don't cut Social Security and Medicare. So do I think for the moment they are retreating on that issue? I think for political reasons, they know that it is a very unpopular idea. So yes, I do. In terms of long term, what do we wanna do with Medicare, in my view, as I said, I don't wanna cut Medicare, I wanna expand it to all people through a national health care program, that's my view. Social Security, different issue. Now, in Social Security, the essence of the problem is many young people, by the way, think that Social Security is not gonna be there for them. Is that true? I mean, you heard enough, of you are going broke and you're worried about that, all right. Don't worry quite that much, not quite true. Sure. But this is what we have to do. What we have to do right now is if person X makes $10 million a year, person Y makes $160,000 a year, they both contribute into the Social Security Trust Fund. They both contribute the same exact amount of money because the ceiling is at $160,000. You got that? Doesn't matter if you make a billion or one hundred and sixty; dollars you contribute the same. What I have is legislation with Senator Warren and nine other people, says lift that cap and when you do that and you tax all income, we can make Social Security solvent for the next 75 years, for all of you and for your kids, and expand benefits. The only people who will pay more in taxes are the top 7% and really mostly the people very much on the top. That is the solution. And that's what we're going to be fighting for.
0: Senator Sanders, I know you're busy. We're going to get a few questions from the audience in a moment. Uh, We've just focused on policy tonight. But politics does matter when it comes to policy, in terms of who's in office to try to enact certain policies. You are up for re-election in 2024. I know it's early, but are you leaning towards running for re-election to the United States Senate?
1: You know, it's early. (laughs) Look, you know, um, we spend much too much time talking about who's running and when they're running. Uh, You know, I've represented Vermont in the House and the Senate for a long time. People know me. Right now, I am working day and night on this committee. Uh, And at the appropriate time, I will tell the people of the state of Vermont, you know, whether I'm going to run or not. But it is, it really is, Bob. We just, you know, we're in early March now. We just came to an election in November. And and I think we spend too much time worrying about who's running rather than what the hell the people who are elected are actually doing. Let's, let's. And
0: your progressive campaigns for president have lifted that movement in the past decade. I've covered both of them closely. When you look ahead to 2024 on the presidential side, is President Biden, someone you've worked with on the American Rescue Plan and other initiatives, someone <coughs> you find yourself likely to support for re-election?
1: Yeah, I would. I mean, I've said that publicly. Um, and I just saw the president today. He came to the Democratic caucus, and you know, he was, did a good job in articulating some of the issues he's fighting for. Look. Uh, I ran against Joe Biden, so it's clear my views are different than Joe's. Um, but I want to say this about the president. Uh, unlike uh, other people, historically, I think, he was smart enough to understand that after we, we lost, you know, I withdrew from the campaign, what he said is that, Bernie, look, you got a lot of support. We won. You got a lot of support why don't we form a task force, <clears throat> a series of task forces, get the best people that you know, we'll get the best people we know. How do we address climate change? What should we do on health care? What should we do on the economy? What should we do on housing? So we had all of these, all, virtually all of the major issues. And we had, I think, seven or eight task forces. We go into that in the book a little bit. And, you know, the end result of the results of the task force, you know, were not everything that I wanted, not everything that Biden wanted. But there was a pretty progressive, as you'll recall, pretty progressive uh, agenda that we, we developed. And we published it, and we got it out to the people. And then after Biden took office um, in 21, you know, you, you know, as Americans, I don't know what it is. We have short memory, uh, short memory spans. There was a time a couple of years ago when we didn't have the vaccine, when thousands of people were dying every day, when the economy was collapsing because people did not want to go to work, schools were being shut down, we were really in really troubling times. And I was then the chairman of the uh, Budget Committee, and for a reason I will not bore you with called the Reconciliation Bill. Bob is the only person in this room other than me who knows what that is. Uh, A lot of responsibility came to the Budget Committee to figure out how we can address both the economic crisis and the public health crisis. And we wrote a bill that was called the American Rescue Plan. And you all remember that in the midst of that frightening time, every person in your family got a check for $1,400. Remember that? Family of four, $1,428, $5,600. Did it matter? It helped. If you were a small business person, and you're going out of business, we helped you stay alive. If you are a school like the University of Virginia, my guess is many millions of dollars came into, is that right, folks, Virginia? Many millions of dollars came at a time when kids were not going to school, you needed it. Hospitals at that time were, you know, on the verge of collapse in some cases because people coming in with COVID. We helped rebuild uh, the hospitals, helped sustain them. We said that at that time, Uh, working parents were really struggling with their kids. We provided a $350 so-called tax credit, but it was a check for 350 bucks a month per kid. You got two kids, 700 bucks. That's a lot of money. We put money into housing. You know, the, the country was in crisis, and we said, you know, we gotta help working families and the middle class get out of this terrible crisis. And as one of the authors of that bill, I'm proud of what we did. And Biden was with us every step of the way. And we ended up passing a $1.9 trillion piece of legislation, one of the largest, most consequential pieces of legislation in the history of the United States of America. Joe Biden was there, and I appreciate it. And then what we said, as Bob well remembers, we said, "Okay, we passed a major emergency bill. We dealt with the pandemic as best we could. But we got strong structural problems in American society, systemic, long-term problems. And right now, the American people want us to address those problems. So we ended up working, and again, as chairman of the budget committee, I was actively involved in this, what we called Build Back Better. And what that was about was saying, you know what? This is America. We have to have a childcare system which is high quality and affordable. We put huge amounts of money to making sure that workers in childcare were paid living wages, not slave wages. We put money into making community colleges, and go as far as I want, community colleges tuition free. We put money into affordable housing. We expanded, proposed to expand Medicare for older people to get their teeth fixed, hearing aids, eyeglasses, Right now, if you have a mom or a dad who's 70, 80 years of age, hard, and they want to stay at home and not end up in a nursing home, we can't find home health care workers. We addressed that. We put together a program which started off at six trillion and it went down. But it would have, in my view, been the most transformative piece of legislation for working families since the 1930s. We lost by two votes. We had zero Republican support. And we are two corporate Democrats in a 50-50 Senate where we needed the vice president to break the tide, two corporate Democrats who were more worried about their campaign contributions than the needs of working families. We couldn't pass it. But I want to say, that's a long answer to your question, Bob, but it was, Biden was there all the way. And Biden has told me personally, and he has said it publicly, he wants to be the most progressive president, you know, since FDR. Now, his hands are tied, you know, by the nature of Congress.
0: He famously uh, pointed to the FDR portrait in his meeting with you.
1: That's right. That's right. FDR in the Oval Office, big picture of the FDR. So do I like Joe? I personally have known him for many years. He happens to be a very decent guy. Do we have our disagreements? He does not support Medicare for all. And I would go further in a number of areas. But I like him and I respect him. So
0: And just to add to your comments, I'm quoting from the book here, Senator. You say in your book that those two senators were, quote, heavily financed by corporations, and you name them Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, from the book. Uh, we will now take questions from the audience. Uh, we have some... <laughs> some Center for Politics um, people. Yes, right here. If you please state your name so Senator Sanders can hear it, that'd be great. Uh, good evening, Senator Sanders. My name is Rishi. I'm a first year here at UVA studying foreign affairs. Uh, my question for you is this. In the introduction of your book, you discuss how the rural white voted heavily for Trump in 2016 out of wage st- stagnation and economic discontent. But would you say that issues like multiculturalism and other progressive issues played a deeper role? Um, Richard Rorty, uh, postulated that discontent with liberal ideology in these regards would manifest into a white nationalist party, like some could say we saw under President Trump in 2016 and 2020? Do you think that people being unhappy with having social mannerisms being dictated to them was a bigger issue than economic issues?
1: Look, I think, this is what I think, this is what I wrote. Are there Trump supporters who are outright racists, Yup, outright sexist. Yup, outright homophobes. Absolutely. (laughs) Outright xenophobes. Yup. Anti-Muslim. Absolutely. All right, clear. But all right, there are many more. I've been around the country and I've talked to people. All right, there are many more who are not anti any of that stuff. They may not be, you know, great liberal heroes, but. What they are, no this is an important point to make, okay? Very easy to put down people. These are working class people who in many cases are falling further and further behind. Okay? Maybe their job that they had that gave them a good union wage shut down and moved to China. And then I'm making half of that wage. Maybe they can't afford to send their kids to the University of Virginia. All right, maybe they can't afford health care. Maybe they can't afford the prescription drugs they need. They turn on the TV, and they listen to members of Congress, and nobody is talking to them. They see billionaires getting richer. They see their bosses doing phenomenally well. They're falling further and further behind. And when you have that climate, that lays the groundwork for demagoguery. And the essence of demagoguery is to pick minority groups It could be gay people, could be transgender people, could be Jews, could be blacks, could be Latinos and immigrants, you name it. Different countries do it in different ways. I'm Jewish, my family was wiped out by Hitler, okay? In this country, you got gay people who are being assaulted, you got Muslims who are being assaulted. We know the history of slavery and segregation in America. So what demagogues try to do is to say to people who are struggling The reason that you are hurting now, I know you're in pain, it's because of X, Y, and Z. They never point their finger at the people who own the system and control the system. I'll never forget, read this years ago, way, way back, the lowest paid white workers in America were in Mississippi, the most racist state in the country. I'm talking 50 years ago. Now, what do those white workers have? they were earning crap. You know, what they had is they could drink out of a damn water fountain that a black person couldn't. See, they were superior. That's what, that's what demagogues do. You divide people up. Say, hey, you're better than those blacks. You could drink out of the water fountain. But by the way, we're going to pay you starvation wages as well. And the last thing they wanted, and by the way, interestingly enough, I didn't write about this in the book. In the 1930s, there were folks organizing in the South, black workers and white workers. Did you know it was illegal for blacks and whites to organize together? They'd be together back in the 30s in the South. That's the last thing they wanted, is to see people come together. And what we're trying to do, and we're, as Bob indicated, you know, I think since 2016, we've had some success. What are we trying to do? We're doing exactly the opposite of what the demagogues are doing. They want to divide us up based on the color of our skin, or where we were born, or our sexual orientation, etc. What we want to do is bring people together around a progressive agenda. So to answer your question, yeah, many of Trump's supporters, for whatever reason, are racist, and sexist, and so forth. Many are not. In fact, many of them, I suspect, voted for Barack Obama, and may have voted for his reelection, But they are bitter and disappointed And if we don't speak to that disappointment, this country is not only in economic trouble, we are in deep trouble in terms of defending our democracy.
2: Uh, Thank you again for coming, Senator Sanders. Um, My name is Eleanor Jenkins. Um, And given your commitment to sustainability and discussions about the Biden administration, um, what are your thoughts on the Biden administration's upcoming decision concerning the uh, Willow Project oil venture in Alaska?
1: All right. Help me out on the one I've been preoccupied with. This is what, allowing for drilling and oil?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, Look, uh, I would disagree with that. You know, the good news is that um, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, I don't know how much it did for inflation, but it did put uh, a lot of money into sustainable energy, more money than we have ever seen uh, moving the country to electric cars uh, and to um, solar energy. And We have in that we had a bill for seven billion dollars, which is going to make it easier for working families put up rooftop solar, et cetera, et cetera. That was a significant step forward. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, there are things that are taking place which to me don't make a lot of sense. Look, at the. I don't want to get you all nervous because you already know this. Uh, you've heard it, and it's true. Uh, climate change is an existential threat. And it's hard for us to wrap our hands around it because nobody has ever had to deal with something of such enormity. Uh, but in my view, Uh, We have got to move very very boldly. I mean the Inflation Adjustment Act was a step forward. We've got to go further and you know, that's why I'm a proponent of what we call the Green New Jobs program because I think we can create millions of good-paying jobs. And by the way, to you, we need you guys. We need you desperately. You know, we need you to do the work to help transform our energy system. That means energy efficiency. That means sustainable energy, this is not easy stuff, that means transportation, it means agriculture. We need you to be workers, to be engineers, to be scientists, to be educators. Right now, I'll give you an example. In my own state, and it's true in most states of the country, we also passed, Biden helped us do this, a major infrastructure bill. In my small state, we got $2 billion coming in to deal with roads, bridges, water systems, broadband, wastewater. We don't have the workers in order to complete the projects. You know that? We don't. We don't have enough doctors in America. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough dentists. We don't have enough dental hygienists. We don't have psychologists. We don't have addiction counselors. We need you. And you know, one of the things we are trying to do is open the path. That's why we want to make public colleges and universities tuition free. you, are the future of America, man. And we need you. We need you to help rebuild this country. So I hope that, you know, when you leave here and you get a great education here, you go out and you roll up your sleeves, and it's climate, but it's many other issues where your efforts are desperately needed.
0: This will be our final question. We've run a little long, and then Larry will give some brief remarks. So if you could all just stay through this final question and Larry's remarks, we'd appreciate it. Great.
2: Thank you again, Senator Sanders, for being here. My name is Clara Getty, and I'm a second year government and media studies major. Um, And obviously in your book, you write about young people and the importance of them voting in the 2020 and 2022 elections. And while that's really encouraging, do you worry that young people and young voters might feel burnt out by 2024, especially if there is a Biden-Trump rematch? And additionally, you talk about social media being a really effective platform, but I think there's been a lot of digital fatigue in our generation, especially after COVID. Um, So do you worry that it won't be as effective as it once was? Thank you.
1: I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't get the whole question. I think I got about three-quarters of it there. Um Let me start off on voting. Um,
0: the big question is fatigue among the younger generation, whether it's on social right. media or on politics.
1: Right, let me be a hot ass here, right? <laughs> you don't have the right to be fatigued. You know, you know, sometimes I, I've been around folks, and not just young people, I went to a demonstration to try to do something. It didn't happen, I'm finished. Man, I'm burnt out. You know. All of you, who, and I'm sure you've all studied history. All right, let me just deal with a few things. Maybe we end on a fairly optimistic note. If you think that it just happened overnight, that America in 2008 elected the first African-American in American history. You think, oh, Barack Obama was charismatic. what's what happened. He was able, when I was a kid, if somebody had said to me, well, in 2008 we'll have a black president. No way. Nobody would have believed it. Okay? It happened because of mass movements of people. All right? God, I'm dating myself. You must think I'm 130 years of age. but. <laughs> Not so many years ago. Bob, you may know this. When was Barbara Mikulski the only woman in the Senate? Do you remember? How many years ago was that? Uh,
0: probably 40 years ago.
1: How many, 40? I don't think it was that long. Uh, whatever it was. <laughs> whatever it was. I mean, you know, in a reasonable modernistic?
0: It was before the year of the woman in 1992,
1: for sure. All right. But what I'm saying is, in recent, <laughs> in recent American history, there was one woman from Maryland, Barbara Mikulski in the United States. Ninety-nine guys, one woman. Today I don't know what the number is. It's twenty or thirty. It's going to go up every year. In a few years, half the Senate and Congress will women. Right. But my point is, fatigued young lady. <laughs> that didn't happen by accident. I mean that's a struggle over a hundred years. When I was a kid Grew up in a normal, lower middle class neighborhood. I didn't know anybody who was gay. Not because there weren't young people who were gay, but they couldn't come out. That changed, okay? So, change does not, you gotta understand this. If you're serious about politics, and this book is about serious politics, change always comes from the bottom on up. It is not easy. People die, workers died for a 40-hour week and decent wages. They died, they were shot down, all right. So, what the struggle is about, you're part of a long struggle, going way, way back for justice, you know, Christ talked about it, great philosophers talked about it. Do unto others as you were doing to me. That's deep stuff, that's the struggle. Are we ever gonna create a just society? Probably not in your lifetime. But that's part of an ongoing mission that other people have given you. You've got to give it to your kids, and they will give it. That's the struggle. So especially with climate being such a danger to the planet, we don't have the right to be fatigued. We have the right to roll up our sleeves and get to work and transform this country. Thanks.
2: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara ong wigley Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Phase. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time.